Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Hello, everyone at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, Ariana, and the whole team. Hi, Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. I'm Matt Potts. I'm Naomi Westwater. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, an Owl Post edition. We are so lucky today to be joined by Naomi Westwater, a musician, producer, and spiritual leader from Massachusetts. Naomi holds an interdisciplinary BA from Goucher College in the practice of theory of storymaking and a Master of Music degree from Berklee College of Music in contemporary performance and production. Naomi's work has been featured in WBUR's The Artery, Vanya Land, The Lily, and The Boston Compass. She's been awarded the Princeton Prize in Race Relations, the Kratz Center for Creative Writing Fellowship, a Club Pasim Iguana Fund Grant, a Boston Opportunity Fund Grant, and the Postmasters Fellowship from Berkeley College of Music. And most importantly, she's going to be teaching a class with us called Harry Potter and Wizard Supremacy, exploring supremacy in the wizarding world and our own. And it will start Tuesday, June 1st, and you can learn more about it at NotSorryWorks.com. Welcome, Naomi. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. So Naomi, you brought to us this idea of exploring wizard supremacy in order to think about supremacy in our world. We are just at the very beginning of book one, and I'm wondering where you see this idea of wizard supremacy right at the beginning of these books, because Matt and I have already been struggling with the wizarding world just in chapters like one through four. I see it in a lot of places, but the space that jumps out for me is when Hagrid kind of comes busting in. (laughs) 
And I'm trying to work really hard to find a lot of compassion for the Dursleys because I think so much magic happens to them without any of their consent. And I see that as like a big first step. This magical being is dropped off at their doorstep and they have no consent to accept care for Harry. Then there are all these letters and owls coming into their house and there's no consent for them to say, yes, I want to accept this. And then Hagrid kind of just busts in. And even, I think it's in like the next couple chapters, the way he talks about muggles, you can hear the supremacy attitude in there. So it's there at the very beginning. But Hagrid isn't aware of that when he's kind of saying these things about muggles, that he's saying it because he's living in a wizard supremacy world. Like He's not thinking about that, but it's there. And I think that's where supremacy can be very dangerous, is that we're so unaware that it exists, but it is kind of everywhere. Isn't it a quote in the first chapter, like a bigger group of muggles you've never seen? McGonagall's insulting the Dursleys for being something that they can't help but being. In order to insult someone by like saying an essential part of their identity seems to be one of the really easy ways to notice supremacy. And a part that they cannot help. I think that's another big thing is there's no control that we know of about who gets born a wizard versus a muggle. I think there is a slight arrogance that comes with the wizarding world that, oh, muggles should just kind of do what we tell them to do. There isn't even the opportunity for when we look at later on in the books, like the muggle prime minister to kind of say, I actually think we should discuss maybe you all coming out of the broom closet. There's just no agency for muggles in these books or in this world. And that's just like the very tip of the iceberg because wizards are superior. Then you get all these other hierarchies, right, of pure blood versus someone who's muggle-born versus someone who's mixed blood versus someone who is sympathetic to muggles versus someone who's half-giant, right? You get all of these hierarchies because the most wizard you can be is, is the best. Yeah, thanks, Naomi, for using the books to talk about supremacy. I guess I have something I'd like you to comment on. I don't know if it's a question, but it just got something that really stirred up some interesting thoughts for me. And I just want to know what your reaction is. Yeah. So we know that race is a biological myth. There is actually nothing within white bodies that imbues them with extra power. In fact, white supremacy is about systems of power. The systems of power that frame our culture and that frame white bodies is what lends them the power. There's no power inherent in their bodies. Mm-hmm. With wizards, their bodies actually do stuff that muggles can't do. What's not there is the structures. Like, in some ways, what Voldemort is trying to do is to build structures of power to mimic the actual embodied powers that they have. I just wondered if you just think along with me about this, because one of the things that wizarding supremacy really highlighted for me is sort of the myth of embodied white power. I will push back on that a little bit because so much of a wizard's power comes from their wand. We do know that Harry does have a lot of kind of random inherent magic that happens to him as a child. But we see that goblins kind of later on complain that they don't have access to wands. And what would it be like if other magical creatures had access to wands? So there is a little bit of this power that wizards have that they still need some kind of tool to conduct it. And I think especially now reading the books, you know, in 2021, almost everything that the wizards can do, we could probably do with technology. Why is being able to send an owl any better than sending an email if they can both do the same thing effectively? 
it's totally does allow us to think about where supremacy is in, in our culture with white supremacy, but but all different types of supremacy and really anywhere where someone thinks they're superior than someone else. And I think the books allow us to ask why. So many people always point out the fact that Voldemort isn't pureblood. One would argue that wizard supremacy actually doesn't serve him as as much because he's not actually pureblood. And yet he's kind of even fed into this system. So, yes, he comes with all this power and all of these horrible ideas. But there was already a system in place of wizard supremacy that allowed him to thrive. If they weren't already living in a society that was like, yeah, wizards are the best, someone extremely violent saying, let's make muggles our slaves and take over and purebloods on top, people would be like, that is crazy. But because there is already a culture of like, yeah, kind of, (laughs) we're subtly doing that anyhow, he can rise to power and people will follow him. I think about this so much with Trump. If there weren't people who were willing to follow him. He he wouldn't have gained so much power. So as much as I think there is a lot about him as an individual, it's also about a society that allowed an individual to thrive with such hateful ideology. As you say that, it makes me really think not just about supremacy more generally, but also privilege. Because to some degree, I think what you're saying, and I really believe this and agree with it, like, the source of wizarding power is not the most important thing. Dismantling that power is going to mean some wizards relinquishing power. And when you think about white privilege, like it it requires white people being willing to recognize privilege and also share power and give power to those who have historically been and are still disempowered. This is the moral demand that is placed on those who operate in supremacist ways without knowing and enjoy privilege without being aware. Like it's going to require becoming aware and then sharing power or giving up power to those who have not had power. I think the Malfoys are a great example of kind of generational wealth versus generational poverty. They're this long, old, pureblood family, and they have a ton of wealth. So here comes, let's say, Hermione. Let's just kind of assume Hermione's coming into the wizarding world with very little wealth because she's a first-generation witch. And so how is she going to ever gain the amount of power and influence that someone like the Malfoys have in this structure? She doesn't have thousands of years of lineage of being in in this world. Despite the fact that she is still an excellent, smart, very capable which that's a really great way, I think, of talking about things like reparations and just understanding generational wealth and that beyond just wealth being passed down, poverty can be passed down. I think you can debate both in our world and the wizarding world, what is the best way to reallocate some of that wealth? There's all different ways that you can do it. But the system is not equal. And the Malfoys are kind of arguing that someone like Hermione shouldn't even be invited in. Part of the reason that they're saying that is because they hold more power if she's not invited in. I think also someone like Hermione, who is a very talented witch, threatens the fact that it has nothing to do with your blood status. Draco Malfoy has every single resource imaginable to him, and he still doesn't get marks as high as Hermione. So it has nothing to do with blood status. 
I love that that also points out the lie of meritocracy. You see it in multiple places, right? Draco still does better than Neville in potions class because Snape gives preference to Draco. Neville has inherited a wand that hasn't chosen him, whatever that means, right? We have no reason to believe that Draco is a more talented potions maker than Neville is, and yet he is going to succeed better at it because of his wealth and status. And then Hermione is going to succeed the most in potions. And yet that doesn't even matter, right? Even on these micro levels, we see that meritocracy is just a complete lie. What I think is so important and what the books are allowing us to do is that I love Hogwarts. Like I was 11 waiting for my letter. I wanted to be there, but it has a lot of flaws. And so I think what is beautiful about working through supremacy in fiction is that we can say, well, I love this institution, but it's still not perfect. And something can have wizard supremacy ingrained in its institution as part of its founding, but we can still love it, but it still needs it still needs work to be fixed and we need to work on it. And we can do the same thing with our own systems. You know, I think sometimes people say, well, I don't want to do the work because it means that I'm bad or someone I love is bad or evil or something like that. Supremacy to me is so widespread that it's actually like, no, actually, even quote unquote good people can have supremacy ideology or or just have been raised in a society with supremacy. Supremacy isn't a, a good versus evil thing. It's more complicated than that. There are characters that I love so much that have this wizard supremacy ideology and and we can still love them but understand that they have work to do so it's really it's just thinking about that and i think if we can accept that characters we love have flaws <laughs> but we can still love them then we can kind of look to ourselves and and understand that oh i am also a product of a supremacist culture which means that there are some flaws that i have whether i'm consciously aware of them or not and it doesn't mean that i need to feel guilty or feel that I'm an evil, bad person. It just means I need to be a little bit more aware and understand I have to work through some of these things and and do some questioning. Naomi, that makes me think of that we can love people while still acknowledging their flaws. And you also began by saying you can love an institution like Hogwarts. And and in fact, loving that institution means acknowledging its flaws and trying to prepare them. I mean, I, you know, I teach at Harvard Divinity School and I love Harvard Divinity School. And Harvard Divinity School aspires to be a truly multi-religious place where people study religion. And one of the things that we at the Divinity School have been discovering in the past 10 or 12 or 15 years, and this is mostly because of students and faculty and staff who are not Christian, is how much even our historical idea of what it means to be multi-religious is from a Christian perspective. Like we're assuming a Christian notion of what multi-religious means, right? And that assumes a kind of Christian supremacy already even in what we believe is a gesture of welcome and openness, and that we really need to be willing to listen to folks who want to explain to us all the things that we do not understand about ourselves in order to actually become that community. And so we can love the place and even love its aspiration while still being critical of it and trying to make it better. And, and, And the way you just described Hogwarts and your love for Hogwarts just really kind of refracted that and framed that in a useful way for me, just in the work that I do every day as a faculty member and a community member at the school that I love. It's decentering self, which is so hard because this is the only perspective I've ever had, right? So I, I think Ron is such a great example of that because he's really sheltered in his burrow bubble and he meets Harry and Hermione and they both bring to him all these different perspectives and ideas. And sometimes he 
has a hard time understanding them. And sometimes it can be very funny. There are little things like in the seventh book, he tries a cappuccino and he's like, that is disgusting. <laughs> or I'm I'm listening to the fifth book right now and Arthur is in St. Mungo's and he wants to try stitches and Molly's freaking out about muggle medicine. But it's like, well, it does work. It might not work with, you know, magical snake venom, but it does work. So there's just all these new perspectives that they're bringing for Ron. And we do see it's a long arc, but we do see that he becomes a little bit less rigid in his thinking or just assuming that what he grew up with is law or how it is. But it's really hard for us to decenter ourselves, even when we think we are actively doing it. <laughs> and that's where the other component of the class comes in, which is compassion and empathy. I think those are two huge things for combating supremacy, because I think if you have empathy for someone, it's hard to also feel superior to them. Yeah, I mean, you could say that a lot of Ron's growth derives from the fact that he loves Hermione. He, like, he's answerable to a form of life, which is not the one that he assumes in his own life. Yeah, and Harry is this great in-between, too, because he was raised by muggles, but he has this other connection to the wizarding world. So he also gives this complete new perspective to where he can kind of understand both Ron and Hermione's upbringing a little bit. I mean, God bless Harry. You could see him just developing a hatred of, for muggles so easily. You know, we're in these first few chapters where his life is so hard and he suffers so much abuse. The fact that he escapes that and continues to have empathy for and compassion for those who are not pure bloods or whatever is speaks just to some kind of inborn integrity that he has. Yeah, I'm not sure where it comes from, but I mean, the, he still has flaws. I see it more with him with <laughs> misogyny, but... <laughs> But there is something that this just inherent love and, and understanding, because he was not raised in a wizard supremacy world, he is kind of almost ignorant to, like, why should Hermione be treated differently? And I think that also then gives him the power because he's placed into this world to see how amazing it is and appreciate all of the amazing things. He Sometimes he's just like, oh, I love magic. And then he can also see, like, oh, huh, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Why are we doing it this way? I love the model of Ron's growth. I think it's such a helpful way to think about the possibility within ourselves to deprogram ourselves from white supremacy. Because like at the end of the books, the big moment is where he sees the house elves as part of the Hogwarts community. Now the house elves are part of what needs to be protected and protected by him. That act of like constantly expanding what it means to empathize with people further and further away from how you think of yourself, I think is beautifully modeled by Ron at the end of the book. And I think it's it's a possibility because he gets to know house elves. The way the system is designed is house elves are not supposed to be really a part of your life. They're supposed to be, you know, not seen or heard from. And unless you have a lot of money, you wouldn't even really come into contact with one. And if you do have a lot of money, the way you come into contact with one is in this really subservient, gross way. So I think part of that growth is possible is because he gets to know several house elves in an intimate way, just like he gets to know Hermione. He also gets to know several house elves in that he understands that they're not all the same. When I think about it specifically with race, it's like, okay, if you grew up in a neighborhood where everyone is the same race as you, 
of course it's going to be really hard for you to have empathy for someone of another race from you. And then maybe you go and you meet a couple other people, but now you're getting all of these assumptions that because you met this one Black person, everyone is going to be like that one Black person that you met. Ron, through the books, gets this exposure to other magical creatures, specifically to really three house elves. And that's able for him to create compassion and empathy for them and to understand that they all have their own wants and needs and desires and agency and are on different parts of the what I call the wizarding spectrum. This is the wizard supremacy spectrum. And I think that's another thing. It's it's a lot of work. I feel very often very frustrated by Ron in these books, but he does a lot of work to get to know people and creatures beyond himself. And that is why he does have that character arc at the end of the books. I don't think if he had actually had interactions with house elves that he would all of a sudden, just because Hermione has been talking about it, have been like, oh, yeah, and let's protect these people, these creatures, too. One of the things, again, that your project now had me thinking about is just Voldemort and his name, the etymology of it or whatever it means, like flight from death or whatever, to flee from death or whatever, right? And one of my favorite lines in American letters comes from James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, when he actually says, like, white people do not believe in death. And that's the problem. And that what we need to do first is accept the tragic fact that this world we love will the lights will go out for us one day. And it's starting from this point that we can actually start to to live more fully and have compassion for others and not project our fear onto others. And just like the fact of Voldemort's naming just seems to have this, to share that really deep and key insight from James Baldwin's critique of, of white supremacy. And as soon as I heard about your project, I just couldn't stop thinking about that line. So I think it's a great a great tool. Thank you. Yeah, I, I also think we're going to have challenging conversations, but I also think there will be some fun, too, because we're coming at it through these works of fiction. And so instead of having to do incredibly heavy lifting of constantly going inward, we can kind of talk about these difficult topics of like, OK, where do we see an example like this in the books? One of the things I want the class to talk about is What are some creative, magical ways that Hogwarts could become more equitable? That's fun. Let's think about that, right? We know that in the seventh books, the word Voldemort gets jinxed. So what if the slur mudblood was jinxed at the school, right? And so anytime someone used that slur, a teacher was notified and could immediately step in and do some restorative justice, right? There are some really fun, magical ways that Hogwarts could say, we know we have this supremacist past and founding. It's it's part of our founding. So we have to do some actual work. And we have this amazing tool called magic. And we can do a, a lot of fun things to to make sure that we create a safer environment and a more equitable space for everybody, despite their heritage and their blood status. So having a little bit of fun with it as well and kind of thinking creatively is going to be another aspect of the class. Naomi, I love that. I love that creative way of thinking about ways to make Hogwarts a better place. And I can just hear all of our listeners like immediately having ideas about like, ah, you could also make the stairways ramps and make the potions directions get printed into like multiple ways of learning. Like maybe Neville needs an audio guide for the potions lessons or instead of like reading them on the chalkboard. I'm very excited about this. 
I love that you're emphasizing the fun and creativity, right? Because like, if this work is about becoming more empathic, more compassionate, that feels good. The work of dismantling oppression is necessary work and sometimes it's hard work, but it also is life-giving work and should feel life-giving when you're really doing it with others in a creative, uplifting way. So that's, I'm glad to, so grateful to hear you emphasize it that way and to use the books this way. I think it has to be sustainable. Racism is not going to be resolved in my lifetime, but it is something that I feel like I have to continue to work on. But I can't be burnt out on it in one year and then just kind of be like, well, I worked really hard for one year and now I'm exhausted. So we all have to think about how can these things be sustainable? And usually what that means is whatever you're already doing, invite an anti-supremacy like action into what whatever you're already doing, instead of having to go out and, you know, reinvent the wheel for yourself. All of us are already reading Harry Potter and, and kind of soaking up this world and these texts. So let's continue to do that. And just for, you know, this time, let's do it in this new lens and invite this new framework into the text that we already love. I'm so excited for this class and for the members of our community who get to take this class with you. And I hope that you offer it every year forever with us. I also just like love using these books that are so problematic in this subversive way that I doubt they were ever intended to be used, but I think that they can be used to great effect. You are doing the thing that you say that you want Hogwarts to do with Voldemort's name. You are turning these books into a tool to dismantle white supremacy. And that's incredible. And I'm so excited and grateful. Thank you. I'm, as I said, super giddy to teach the class. And 10 classes is not going to be enough, <laughs> but it'll be something. Everybody go to notsorryworks.com and learn about Naomi's class. And we hope to see so many of you there. Awesome. I'm so excited. I am so excited. I think it's going to be so good. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Now is the time in our episode where we share the names of those in our community lost to COVID. Alan Gast, 72, who was a grandfather of 11 and a tomato grower. Gloria Simpson, 87, a nana and mother, an incredible gardener and lover of animals, and a giver of Harry Potter books. Jay Karen, age 60, in a big way. Bobby Williams, 93, an avid runner. Helen Ederer, age 66, a TMer and swimmer who loved her family. Jorge Peralta, 69, a father of two and a grandfather of five, who is sorely missed by his family in the United States and also those back in Costa Rica. Let light perpetual shine upon them. Matt, we're now going to transition to listening to voicemails from our community members. And our first voicemail is from Tracy. And Tracy sent in this voicemail right after our episode with John Green at the end of last season. Good morning, Casper, Vanessa, John, and the rest of the Sacred Text team. This is Tracy, and I've just finished listening to Book 7, Chapter 36, Hope in the Flaw and the Plan. This really hits home as we enter a new era of COVID-19. The numbers are coming down, vaccine numbers are going up, but we really were hit hard. I am the only person in a family of 10 that did not get COVID this year. I sent both my parents to the hospital and only one came home. We lost my dad to COVID-19 on October 25th of this year. And while I am super pleased with what I'm seeing with the numbers coming down and vaccines, it is all tempered with a sadness and a heaviness still that my dad's not here to experience this. He was waiting for Joe Biden to get elected so that things would be put right. And he wasn't here to see that either. We've got so many things that we're still dealing with this year first holidays without him, events for my children that he won't be involved with, that he was an integral part of. And so I understand what it means to have hope, but still be sad and feel heavy carrying that hope in our hearts. I thank you for bringing the words to me to express this because I didn't know how to say it. I'm still really angry with how things were handled. I'm angry with family and friends who still refuse to wear masks and don't believe that it was real. 
and you've allowed me to be able to give voice to the people that are no longer here. And I appreciate that. And I didn't know how to express just what I was feeling until I heard the discussion of this chapter today. Bless you all. Thank you for all you have done. And Casper, I will miss your giggle. Thank you so much. Tracy, thank you so much for that voicemail. I am so sorry for your loss. And I think that many of us, like you, are carrying that sadness as we are also grateful and excited to move to this next phase. I do remember someone somewhere saying about the moment that Biden won, oh, look, we survived. And just this feeling of so many of us didn't survive. And I feel like your voicemail is really trying to carry that combination moment of celebration and grief, which I feel like whenever we celebrate, there's something to grieve. Yeah, thank you, Tracy. And I want to join with Vanessa in just offering my my real sympathy for the incredibly difficult year that you've had in your family and for the loss of your dad. One thing about hope is that it's stubborn, but it's not stubborn in a way that denies the losses that we've suffered or pretends that those losses shouldn't make us angry. And I'm really grateful for the language you used. And and I really see the form of hope that you have and that you shared with us as an example of the way that we can move forward into this difficult new stage of, of the pandemic. So, so thank you again for sharing your story and your family's story with us. Our next voicemail is from Shiri. Hello to Casper and Vanessa and everyone at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My name is Shiri. While listening to the beautiful recitation of names and tributes at the end of each episode, I can't help but think about the people who died of COVID-19 relatively anonymously with no one to submit their name. Specifically in my home of Washington, D.C., 24 people have died of COVID-19 while experiencing homelessness, and that's those that we know of. Now, I don't know the names of these 24 souls, and that in and of itself really breaks my heart. You know, I wanted to submit them to your tribute and say the 24 people who died while experiencing homelessness in D.C., but that that didn't feel right. That does them such a disservice, reducing their lives to this one injustice, this massive injustice that they were subject to. It sort of defines them by this one characteristic, which is completely unfair because we know that these 24 people had passions and personalities. They loved and were loved. And my faith reminds me that that they were images of God. Each is deserving of their own memory and their own tribute, but our unjust society has stripped them of that even in their death. And so I guess I want to offer a blessing to all of those around the world who have passed on without the dignity of a tribute, without the security and sanctuary of a home, without the comfort that someone would remember them and mourn them and carry their memory on. And I want to thank you for, among many, many, many other things, for sharing this grieving opportunity with the podcast community. It's really powerful to be able to, in one podcast, laugh uncontrollably and also be so deeply moved by the words of you all, the words of others in the community, and just the ideas that this podcast represents. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Shiri, for 
your voicemail and for your memory, for for your insistence upon remembering all those who are unremembered and for insisting upon blessing their lives and and voicing the fact that they had personalities and passions and all the sorts of things that are so wonderful and joyful about about life. You know, one of the most moving experiences that I've ever had as a as a person, I actually wasn't ordained yet. I spent a summer working at a Catholic worker house in Phoenix, Arizona. And one of the things that the people at this at this home did is we went out every couple of weeks and we we performed funerals for people who were buried in unmarked graves who were homeless people usually. It was a completely surreal experience because the sheriff of Maricopa County at the time was a guy named Joe Arpaio. Uh, and he actually made inmates in the county jail in a chain gang dig all the graves and lower the coffins into the holes in the ground. And it was right next to an Air Force base. So there were F-16 fighter jets flying over our heads. But there was something about being there and just insisting upon memory, about being a community of people who showed up and said all the prayers and and witnessed to the preciousness of these lives. Again, it's a, it's a thing that, that I remember really well now, obviously, and that stirs me. I'm really grateful that you shared this voice memo with us and also shared this this insistence upon memory with us. And and your voicemail reminds me not only of that experience, but also, you know, in my own routine prayer life, one of the prayers I say is for the unremembered dead. Uh, and it's for all the reasons that you note so eloquently in your voicemail. So thank you for it. Sherry, thank you so much for that voicemail. I appreciate you bringing this sort of tip of the iceberg reflection for us of what is a stain on all of our souls, the way that we treat the homeless in this country, the way that we create homelessness in this country. And Matt, I, I did not know that about you. That is a like really remarkable and beautiful thing that you were a part of. Our next voicemail is from Lori. Hello, everyone at Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. My name is Lori Kim, and I'm blessing Snape for demonstrating something fundamental about my Korean-American second-generation experience. My parents lived through the brutal Japanese colonial period and the Korean War. They immigrated to the U.S. and raised my brother and me to know a life without domestic war. This meant we had a generation gap. Their own kids couldn't understand some of the trauma that formed them as people. My parents moved back to Korea, and I never worried about their safety until Trump became president. And I had sleepless nights thinking, please don't bomb my parents. Please don't bomb my parents. I couldn't stand thinking that in their old age, they might know that kind of upheaval again because of the whims of a petty dictator. My dad made me feel better when he said, no regime lasts forever. That comment helped me feel the way people who have lived through war wish for peace without assuming they're going to live to see it. They think beyond their own lifespans the way Snape did. When Harry was 11, he thought Snape's eyes were cold and empty and made you think of dark tunnels. Well, we know in this series, tunnels lead to revelations. When Snape is dying, he tells Harry, look at me. It's time for him to show Harry that he's going to have to sacrifice himself. By that time, Harry has cast unforgivables, including one he enjoyed. He's reeling at the sight of people who he thinks died for him. It took experiences like this for Harry to be able to see Snape in a way that he couldn't when he was younger. This part of the story captures for me the sheer scale of the emotion in a lot of Asian immigrant families. Lori, thank you so much for this voicemail. I feel like you are inviting me to 
see Snape not as the like creepy dude who says always, but as the like warrior who says, look at me. And I think that that is a real invitation for me to see Snape in a new way, which I'm especially grateful for. We haven't met him yet in this reread that we're doing with Matt and this reframe of Snape, I find really helpful. So thank you so much for that. I want to thank you as well, Lori, just for speaking about how deeply trauma informs who we are and how we are in the world and framing Snape as arising out of this era of violence, I think is a helpful way for us to look at him. And speaking of which, I'm also really grateful as a Japanese American, I'm really grateful that you spoke directly and frankly of the cruelty and brutality of of Japanese colonialism in East Asia. It's not something that Japanese people, certainly the Japanese government or Japanese people speak enough about, but it's something that that merits remembrance. So I'm very grateful for you just speaking frankly about it and directly to it, to me and to our listenership. Our next voicemail is from Lainey. Hi, Ariana, Casper, and Vanessa. It's Lainey. First of all, I love the podcast and the way you make meaning of seemingly meaningless things. It has saved my day more than once and never fails to make me think. I wanted to add something to the conversation that you had about Book 4, Chapter 9, which you read through the theme of grudges. When you talked about Hermione always adding the source of her knowledge to the comments she makes, I was reminded of something in my own life. Being called smart is a nice compliment to get. When I know the answers to questions that are asked, that are asked in class, that is because I read the chapter we were supposed to read or sat down at home and figured out how this equation works, and not because I'm smart. It both seems like an undeserved compliment and belittling the work I put into something. And it goes like, you've got an A? I knew you'd get one, you always get one. Which is firstly not true, and secondly could be interpreted in two different ways. The first one is, you always work hard to get the grades you want, which is why I'm not surprised. But in combination with the tone that is used, it's more likely to mean, that's because it's naturally given to you. I don't want to compare myself to an icon like Hermione in any way, but when I say, I know this because, it's my way to say, knowledge isn't something I'm born with, and that I know something about this is a coincidence and doesn't mean that I'm all-knowing. But I've spent time and effort in getting to know these things, and I want that to be appreciated, and not just tossed aside as an ability that I was born with. Thank you for doing the podcast, and I wonder what you think about this. Bye. Lainey, thank you so much for your voicemail. I absolutely think you should compare yourself to the icon of Hermione. Hermione, I will speak for her right now, would probably love that you did that. I just would like to say that I'm someone who finds myself knowing things, not because I worked very hard, but because like I will know about the British slave trade because it will get mentioned in a romance novel. So I think that while knowing things is because you work hard, I don't think that It's the same amount of work for everybody. I think some people can work just as hard as you work and still not get the grades. I think some people might work harder than you, right? I think that these things are complicated. But the big thing that I completely agree with is that compliments can often feel erasing rather than affirming or backhanded. Like, why are you surprised? I had someone say to me, I'm surprised by how good this food is to me when I cooked. And I was like, that's hurtful. Why would you assume that I couldn't cook, right? I think compliments are just a much more complicated thing than we think they are. So I really understand this feeling of, well, it's not just that I'm smart. I worked hard. 
while simultaneously knowing other people work just as hard, right? And so there is probably some talent or you have a quiet place to study where they might not, right? There are all sorts of reasons why people succeed and don't. Lenny, thanks for your voicemail. I'm I'm glad you work hard and I'm glad you're smart. And I'm glad that you're receiving compliments and not insults. You know, I think people can be singled out for a lot of reasons and doing really well at school is a way that people get singled out. And sometimes being singled out doesn't feel good. But I'm glad that the way that you're being singled out in general is by people affirming that the results you produce are real results that they think you can be proud of. So I hope you'll continue to be proud of them. And I hope you'll continue to keep working hard. And I hope you'll continue to keep getting the sorts of results that 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 hard work deserves, because not everybody who works hard gets those results, as Vanessa says. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our last voicemail is from Natanya. Hi, Vanessa, Matt, Ariana, and the whole team. My name is Natanya, and I would like to give a blessing for Ginny Weasley. My older sister is a certified genius, like IQ higher than Einstein's kind of genius, like got a perfect score on her ACTs without studying kind of genius. She majored in math and physics and philosophy in college, got a master's degree in data science, and now works for Google. When I was younger, I was constantly comparing myself to her. I didn't think I would ever be good enough or smart enough to do anything with my life. Ginny Weasley is constantly being compared to the people around her. She's seen as just another one of the Weasleys, Ron's little sister, Fred and George's little sister, Percy's little sister, and then later on Harry's girlfriend, and then Harry's wife. 
she never lets these comparisons get to her. She continues to be strong and kind and beautiful and brilliant and such a total badass. She lives up to her full potential regardless of who she's in relationship with, who's in her sphere. That is true bravery. That is true courage. And to be unabashedly yourself is one of the hardest things a person can do. So I'd like to bless Jenny for going beyond these expectations, for believing in herself above all else, and for helping me believe in myself. I just graduated college with a degree in history and Jewish studies, and I plan to go to medical school one day. My path is very different from my sister's, just like Ginny is very different from Ron and Harry and all her brothers. But that doesn't make it lesser than. It just makes it different. Thank you all for all the work you do. Thank you for your voicemail, Natanya. I I love Ginny, too. I grew up with an older brother who was smarter than me, and I always had teachers, like, expecting different things from me. So I completely identify with what you're saying. Yeah, I think Ginny is one of my favorite characters in the series, and I'm grateful for your blessing. So, Matt, next week, we're going to be reading Chapter 5, Diagon Alley, and I want us to read it through the theme of awe. I think my instincts are to be anti-capitalist in this chapter, but I want us to instead be like, oh, my God, he's about to walk into a new world. He's about to travel for the first time. Let's look for awe. Sounds great. I love it. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook Common Room. Join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. Also, please leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail with your blessings. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We've been edited this week by Juliana Bradley. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we are distributed by Acast. Special thanks this week to our voicemail leavers, Tracy, Shiri, Lori, Lenny, and Natanya. Special thanks, of course, again to Naomi Westwater, to Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. We're so grateful. Talk to you next week, everyone. Like, how do we punish Snape every time he's a bad teacher? We, like, upload some sort of basic teaching manual, and every time Snape is a bad teacher, I don't know, he gets electroshocked. Please don't leave that in the podcast.